Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And Rob, I've got a question for you to start off with today. Uh, I want to know if you, as a child, had a toy that I also had. I think it was really common, and I got it for Christmas one year, I remember. And what it was was a, a plastic alien pistol that when you pulled the trigger... It would play one of a sequence of like five different sequences of sound effects. So the first one would go like do 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 do, and then the next one would go what what what, and the next one would be like I've got that kind of memorized in my brain. Uh, and in the version that I had, there was like a little uh, red and blue clear plastic case over some LED lights that would shoot uh-huh. back and forth when you fired the gun. D- do you know what I'm talking about? I don't know what the name of this thing is, so I don't know how to look it up i i i don't think i had the exact one you had but i i must have had like an earlier model because i had one that was black and red and it did the exact same sound effects you're discussing here so i feel like it had to have been the same tech in just a different color or like a slightly different plastic uh, toy gun now there was one thing i liked about this toy gun which was that it Every time you pulled the trigger, it would make a different sound effect, which means that it, it was almost like you could imagine that you had like uh, one of the stormtrooper blasters from the very beginning of Star Wars, where you have multiple settings you can set, I guess, for the regular blast, and then you can set for stun. Uh, except mm-hmm. the problem was you couldn't toggle the sound effects on this thing. They just win in a sequence. So if you wanted to get one sound effect in particular, you'd have to pull the trigger a certain number of times to like run through the cycle and get back there. I think part of that is the the toy designers focus on tormenting the parents because I've noticed this in contemporary <laughs> toys as well. Um, where uh, my, my son has a few different lightsabers, and one of the ones he has, it seems to at random either do lightsaber noises or play part of the Star Wars theme, but it seems entirely unpredictable. So if the batteries are in, if the device is on. And it seems also confusing about if, if it's toggled on or not. Like, you, <laughs> you're never mm-hmm. sure. Um, you, yeah, you, 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 it's a parent listening in from the next room over. You don't know what to expect. It just keeps you completely on edge. I think if you want to calibrate a sound effects toy for maximum parental torment, you should somewhat randomize the sounds that come out and the sequence at which they come out. Because yeah. that, uh, we know that randomized rewards, they, they tend to create more addictive effects. The child will make the sound effects more often for longer durations and the parents will slowly lose their minds. <laughs> and of course it's also ri- in a, in a way ridiculous because uh, when we were kids, but also kids today, perfectly capable of creating their own sound effects. Mm-hmm. You don't need uh, the, the toy ray gun to go pew pew. You don't need the lightsaber to go <laughs> because we can do those sound effects. We do them all the time. Um, in fact, I think I read that, that they had to get on to Ewan McGregor uh, in filming uh, the prequel films because he kept making those sounds with his <laughs> mouth during the lightsaber really? battles. Yeah, I, I read that somewhere. I don't know if that's true, but it's 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 wonderful either way. So he was like, Anakin, I have the high ground. Vroom. Yep, I think so. Uh, but I guess this all comes up because today you wanted to talk about toy guns, which I thought was a very interesting topic. Yeah, in, in a way, this is a holiday episode because the holidays are about toys under the trees, right? And the holidays at their best are about imaginative escapes. 
And, um, you know, I, I know in, in my own experience raising uh, an eight-year-old, it, it's, it's proven impossible to ignore the, the specter of the gun. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's everywhere. It was, in, it was, you know, in our upbringing. So I, I thought it would be good to look at some of the sort of broad studies and, and meta-analyses that, that look at the idea of toy guns. Because, I mean, first and foremost, we have to recognize that, that actual guns are lethal instruments designed to kill animals and or humans depending on their exact design. Now, gun ownership itself is obviously a divisive topic, uh, and one can spend a lot of time discussing objections to the legal use of such weapons. And there's there's too much here for us to get into in this episode. But I think we can mostly agree that improper use and misuse of firearms is to be avoided. And in very broad strokes, I'm thinking about guns used in homicides and suicides, guns used in mass shootings and accidental deaths involving firearms, especially those involving children. Right. And of course, the the obvious implication there is that children should not be playing with real guns, even though there, there's clearly a desire among many children to enact types of play that involve guns or involve surrogates for guns. So, so there's right. sort of an, a natural uh, accommodation that happens there. It's like, well, kids want to want to pretend to play with guns. Obviously, they should not be uh, seeking out and handling real guns. So give them plastic toy guns. Yeah, and of course, you know, especially nowadays. Uh, but but I mean, this was also present in the, the minds of, of parents in the past too. You know, we ask ourselves: Are we doing the right thing? Are, should they have toy guns? Should we take all the toy guns away? Um, totally, there's so yeah. many questions that emerge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I wonder about this question myself. I mean, I can I can very much see both sides of it. I mean, on one hand, I feel like well, I mean, you know, conflict play is a normal type of imaginative play. Uh, one of the most common types of conflict that children are going to imagine, given the world we live in, is conflict with guns. So they they will want to act that out. And in a way, that just seems like part of childhood development. But then on the other hand, like if you watch a child like, you know, running around pretending to shoot each other, you're like, oh, my God, no, something horrible is happening here. This can't be allowed. Yeah, yeah. It gets increasingly complex the more you think about it, you know, because especially since you're dealing in in different worlds, you know, generally speaking, like the child's world and their exposure to guns is 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 almost entirely within this realm of fantasy. You know, if you know, if if you're fortunate and uh, and adults live in a, a broader world of understanding about what guns are and what they can do. And you don't want to just grab them and pull them completely into your bubble. But but then also the question is, well, should I leave them over there in their bubble? Like, yeah, it, it becomes this 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 labyrinth, uh, this maze that you try and uh, figure your way out of. So this is what we're going to basically be talking about in today's episode. But before we go go further, I thought it might be helpful to go ahead and throw out some stats and some numbers um, just to. Um, you know, underlie the conversation here. So according to the CDC, stats for uh, 2018, the most recently made available um, as of this recording at the tail end of 2020, the United States saw 38,390 deaths from firearm violence in 2018. And that accounted for 74% of homicides and 51% of suicides, uh, those involved firearms. Additionally, Americans are 10 times more likely to be killed by guns than people in other developed countries, according to a 2016 study published in the American Journal of Medicine. 
Gun purchases surged over the summer in 2020, as did incidents of gun violence. We fa- And on top of that, of course, we faced increased awareness of police violence against minorities. And as Craig Jackson pointed out on the conversation, despite lockdown measures in the U.S., mass shootings in the U.S. sharply rose. As of November 26th, I believe there were 578 mass shootings in the country, uh, already ahead of the total 417 from the year before. So we have to face the fact that if our children are going to be running around pretending to play with guns, you're holding that in your head with the reality of all the terrible things that guns can do and have been used to do, even just in, in recent memory. Yeah, I mean, as as a parent, it is it is at once terrifying and then terrifyingly commonplace to get that, that robocall from your school telling you that the, the school has been locked down because of an incident in the surrounding area. Uh, but that everything is cool and you're, you know, it, it's, sh- it's shocking. And then you're like, oh, everything's OK. And then you you ask yourself, should I feel OK about this? Because I feel like I shouldn't. But anyway, as, as far as children and guns go, uh, some more stats here. A 2016 study published in the New England Journal of Medicine found that death by gunshot was the second highest cause of death in the United States in 2016 among children and adolescents ages 1 through 19. Firearms were the second leading cause of death in 2014 for American children between ages of 1 and 19, an average of eight kids shot per day, um, if you average that out uh, over the calendar year. And then 2020 uh, also saw an uptick in unintentional shootings by children by 43% in March and April. And uh, I believe commentators often you know, link that to the fact that suddenly children were at home more and it gave them greater opportunity to come across guns in the household uh, and And, of course, that opens up the door for uh, misuse and accidental usage of the weapon. I think sometimes people get the feeling when when you're talking about things like certain like safety precautions involving like gun storage, you know, should you keep a a gun stored in the home loaded and and questions like that? Um, It's it's strange how people can know what the risks of certain things are, but still think uh, those risks only apply like statistically to people in general. And I am not like people in general. So I I'm okay. Like the, the, I, the, the same logic that holds true in general for people in households won't apply to me or to my household. You know, I, I don't need to worry about that kind of stuff. Isn't it like weird how we can think like that? Yeah, yeah. And and plus, I think we also color our estimation of these numbers based on our own experiences and our, you know, the limited nature of our experiences, you know, like I, on, on one hand, I can lie, I can look back at my own past and say, well, uh, you know, I grew up with guns in the household and, and I didn't, uh, you know, have an accident with a gun. I didn't, I don't, I never loaded a gun on my own or anything like that. I, I don't, think I knew anybody growing up that was engaged in a firearm related accident or the accidental you know discharge of a fire firearm in the house but but then again that's just my limited experience you know right and yeah. it, you know and then rationally I'm not willing to to uh, to roll the dice uh, for my own child based on what I experienced you know right I mean but th- there is definitely a natural tendency to sort of Think of yourself as an exception to whatever yeah. the statistical rule is and to elevate the importance of anecdotes in your own life over the, you know, what the risks actually are. Exactly. Yeah. So as far as the stats go, we could we could keep going on and on about this and torturing the numbers. But uh, and there are ultimately a number of different directions one could go into discussing these numbers, the causes, the possible solutions. But one question that always comes up, sometimes in good faith, sometimes as a distraction, is what about guns in childhood play? And and one of the reasons, again, like we've been discussing, that this is so um, 
uh, you know, something we end up uh, meditating on so much is that, you know, I found that guns and media and subsequently in play are almost impossible to avoid. Because while you can curate what your kids watch, and, and ultimately this is even harder than I expected it to be, they're still mm-hmm. going to interact with other kids, and there's always going to be a kid on the playground that turns a stick into a weapon, turns a stick into a gun or a sword or a spear or what have you, but very often a gun. And even if they don't have access to sticks, they can make the finger guns and blast away, right? Yeah, again, I, I think this comes down to like this difficult question that people have over like how much is it reasonable to try to control your child's experience of the world? Yeah. Um, like you're always going to be balancing that. I mean, when you talked about media, for some reason, the thing that immediately popped into my head is like, what happens once a child discovers YouTube? Like how can, yeah. do you, do you just like set a child loose on YouTube or like how do if, if not, how do you prevent that from happening? Uh, I don't, you know, I, it just seems like it's, it's mind boggling to me. Yeah, yeah, it is. And yeah, we could certainly go on about, about that that topic uh, as well. Uh, uh, but but of course, sorry, that that's ancillary to your main point, which is about play. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I think it's absolutely clear, probably everybody who's been around kids for any amount of time or was once a child themselves probably remembers or has observed the natural emergence of violent and conflict play among kids. It, it doesn't seem like something... Uh, it's hard to rule this out, but it doesn't seem like something that like parents have to instruct their children how how to do. It seems like it just c- kind of comes naturally out of the child brain that like we need to enact some kind of imaginative violent conflict. Yeah, and then the, the gun being an inevitable part of the conflict media they absorb, uh, it just becomes a part of it. And it's a, you know you can try and sort of steer your children towards things like lightsabers and ninja turtles. You know, but even in those genres, there are a lot of guns. You know, there's a lot. There's mm-hmm. a, those are very, ultimately very shooty properties as well. So, you know, unless you you know just want your your you're just going to feed your kid Paw Patrol over and over again and never <laughs> let them move on to something else. Yeah, what do you do? It's funny how many of these properties uh, I, I can think of several offhand. You know, Batman, uh, uh, Star Wars, whatever, have this sort of moral hierarchy of weapon selection where the most morally virtuous characters never use guns. They will mm-hmm. use uh, like hand to hand combat. They do, they do still use weapons of various types, uh, lightsabers and all that. But then as you go down the the hierarchy, down the ladder of moral virtue into more ambiguous and then ultimately evil. Evil characters, the propensity for firearms and firearm analogs gets higher and higher. Yeah, that is interesting, and and I I suppose I I like that. There may be problems with it if I analyze it too much, but on the surface, I like that that I that idea that the, the lightsaber is the civilized weapon and the blaster is the uncivilized weapon. Um, Though I guess I guess it's complicated there because also the Sith lords primarily use lightsabers. Yeah. So like the most evil of the most evil also is shoe blasters and and will only yeah you, know, you can do a lot of damage with the lightsaber. Yeah, you, you yeah. can be a bad guy with just a, a laser sword. Yeah, I have reservations at times when I am ambushed by my my son with a lightsaber because even though I'm not being you know shot at in the hallway, you know he is trying to dismember me. So, but it's dismemberment that comes from a place of love. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, and, and, you know, we'll, I think we'll actually come back to, to some of that uh, in a bit here. But, but let's go ahead and talk about just the topic of aggressive play, because that's you know, very broadly what we're talking about here, um, you know, get, uh, getting out of the media uh, portion of this and getting more into like what children are doing uh, when they're engaging with their toys and each other and their imagination. 
As Jeffrey Goldstein of the University of Utrecht in the Netherlands pointed out in Aggressive Toy Play, published in 1995 in The Future of Play Theory, aggressive play includes mock fighting, general roughhousing, and fantasy aggression. And we can further think of imaginary battles and war toys as being part of war play. Part, uh, quote, Aggressive toys and war toys are those that children use in play fighting and fantasy aggression, including but not limited to toys that resemble weapons. And naturally, this covers a great deal of territory. You know, uh, an old timey, you know, silver toy uh, cowboy pistol. You know, there's a there's a weapon uh, toy, Uh, a bright orange ray gun that looks like nothing you would actually use in a real world combat scenario. Same case, a tiny blaster in a Lego minifigure's hand. Yep, that applies. Lego blocks formed roughly into the shape of a gun, the same thing. A stick, finger guns, you name it. All of that kind of falls under the same uh, uh, loose category here. So basically, like most of the toys I remember having as a kid. Uh, That may be overstating (laughs) it, but it, it is weird also that I wonder how much of this has changed generationally. I'm sure people were having this debate when we were kids, but... I just remember having lots and lots of explicit weapon and even gun toys as a child and all my friends having the same stuff. Yeah, I, and I remember like, making guns like I would watch uh, like a James Bond film. Mm-hmm. And I think it was what from Russia with Love. And there's the whole thing where he has like a rifle that folds up in a suitcase. Yes. So I somehow got my hands on an old suitcase and I had like a pipe uh, that I had in there Whoa. and like some sort of capsule that I was pretending was the the, the bullet, you know, Um uh, yeah, it's just it was so e- so easy to get excited about those things. Well, I think you you should be proud of any child who shows ingenuity of that kind. <laughs> Wait, did you also make yourself a like a Robert Shaw garrote wire? <laughs> oh yeah, that that suitcase had so many uh, interesting bits of spycraft in it, but um, I can't remember what all I had in it. it you know, it was it was um, the imagination was like seventy five percent of it, so it wasn't too impressive. Okay. Now, generally speaking, studies have shown and continue to show that that boys display more aggressive play than girls. And there are various theorized reasons here. But it doesn't mean that it's only boys by any stretch. Uh, The sex differences, though, seem to have been observed across cultures. Uh, Now, given, you know, the the cultural landscape of everything, I imagine this is an area where we're going to continue to see analysis of where we are with this and where we're going with this, Uh, you know, because there, there were a number of of uh, sort of loose ends I could have uh, uh, gone after uh, when I was looking at this. And originally, like, there's a whole thing about, like, gender marketing in uh, gun weapons, you know, particularly, Mm -hmm. like, in Nerf toys. Uh, So there's a lot to consider (laughs) uh, just in this category as well. But these seem to be the trends that have played out over time, and these are the trends that are often uh, at least brought up in any kind of um, study regarding aggressive play and gun play among children. Yeah, it seems pretty clear that that aggressive play is... uh present regardless of gender, but is more common in boys. Yeah. Now, Goldstein pointed out that war play usually begins around age two and occurs once a week with at least a couple of other kids. Uh, I love this detail because I, I know what he's saying, but it also makes me imagine like a child keeping a schedule and you're like, uh, hey, do you want to uh, watch a movie this Wednesday? Like, I'm sorry, I got war play. Um, you know, <laughs> Keith and Toby are, uh, are, are already uh, uh, yeses for that, so I'm going to have to pass. I like that, and and it also makes me think of um, remembering back to my own childhood. 
how thin sometimes the boundary was between something that was explicitly war or violence play and something that was a thinly disguised or leaky surrogate for war or violence play. Some kind of game that was like almost a war that would you'd easily sort of like slip into it being a violent war. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think one of the most uh, you know obvious examples is, of course, sports itself. I right. mean, you know, several times a week, like what, every day you would go to PE class and, you know, maybe you're square dancing or doing that thing with the balloon, with the parachute where you dance around in circles with it. But a lot of times you're playing games, sports games, and those are essentially wars. Those are wars uh, uh, that are uh, that are carried out in a in mostly nonviolent way with uh, some rule limitations. But they they kind of fulfill the same um, role that warfare plays. Um, and then you know on on top of that, you've got all sorts of things, all sorts of games. I mean, you could if you really wanted to stretch things, you could say a game of cards is a war. I mean, any kind of competition, <laughs> right? Yeah, and but I mean, in a in a closer literal sense, I mean, I remember a lot of the games we came up with as a child. When you're not playing like a, a pre created game that has uh, its own rules and all that external to you, but you're doing some kind of Calvin Ball thing. When kids do all the mm-hmm. time that you come up with some original game in your head and you play with your friends. A lot of those games, I recall, were basically just like half a step removed from being a cage match. You know, it's like it's a game that maybe involves a ball or, a you know, some kind of abstract item or rules in some way, but it could easily just devolve into a battle royale. Yeah, well, I guess a part of it is when you see kids play, a lot of it comes down to this sort of improv. Uh, that they're doing. They're all bringing a certain energy and certain ideas to what they're playing and how they're playing. And so, you know, the right combination of kids might be just concerned with building a house for a mouse or doing an archaeological dig in the dirt. Mm-hmm. But then there's going to be a kid that comes up and is going to bring the finger gun, you know, kind of like uh, what, Michael right. Scott in The Office <laughs> in every improv scene <laughs> uh, pretends to have a gun. Well, that scene in The Office highlights a, a great thing about about play, actually, which is that, you know, occasionally in an improv scene, if somebody were to bring a gun into the scene, that would be fun and interesting and it would liven things up. And, oh, what are we going to do now? But the problem comes because he introduces a gun into every improv yes. skit. And I think the same thing could probably be said of play. Like, you know, it, it's normal for children to enact is imaginative conflict play. But when, when some kid wants to turn everything into an imagined violent conflict, then it's like, okay, that's not fun anymore. Yeah, yeah. And then I don't remember if it was explicitly stated or if it was even implied, but I, I, looking back on it, I kind of feel like it was the same gun scenario that he would bring. Yes. Uh, which also ties into some of the points that are, are made in one of the sources we looked at for this episode. So anyway, the, the big question here is not whether kids engage in aggressive play, because they do, uh, but it's rather about what is it for and indeed if it actually leads to more aggressive behavior. And Goldstein points to a trio of studies from the 1990s that, that indicate that war games and video games with violent themes increase the frequency and duration of aggressive play, but the connection to actually aggressive behavior, that's a different story. That's ultimately a lot more complicated. Yeah, I guess this is the big question that a lot of parents are probably worried about. Like if they watch their kid doing doing aggressive play, what they're worried about often is, does this mean my child is going to grow up to be a violent person? Yeah. And we may think about this sometimes as adults when we play our video games and and whatnot, especially if you're playing a game that actually gives you like a kill count. 
<laughs> which can be a little sobering at times. And you're like, oh, my God, I, I sure did pretend shoot a lot of people. Am I okay? So anyway, that that's a whole area we'll have to consider coming back to in the future. But uh, I, I thought a good place to go from here would be to travel back to 1967 okay. and consider something uh, that we know as the weapons effect. So back in 67, American social psychologist Leonard Berkowitz and co-author Anthony LePage conducted a randomized study using male college students. Now, each test involved two participants, but one of these participants was always a secret accomplice accomplice of the testers. So you only really have one random individual, uh, one, you know, pure college student that's in here and is is being tested. The other person is just is actually a part of the study, but pretending to be a test subject. Right. So the subject and the accomplice would take turns engaging in a mundane task, such as uh, the example that that I saw listed was uh, listing ideas to help sell used cars. <laughs> and uh, first, po- point the, a gun at the buyer. No, no, no. Yeah. The, the, gun, the, the gun comes in later. But, <laughs> uh, but yeah. So the the actual assignment here has nothing to do with guns. It's just something mundane and you know, uh, and, and ultimately, I think, nonviolent. Uh, so first, the accomplice gives the subject feedback on their work. And they give this feedback with between zero and 10 small electric shocks. Okay. Okay. 1967. Fun. Yeah. So that's, again, that's the fake test subject shocking the actual test subject. But then it's the actual test subject's turn to shock back. Uh, So this was the basic test for aggression. How many shocks would they retaliate uh, with? How aggressive would they be? And here's where the weapon came into play. Sometimes there was a gun or guns on the table. I believe it was a shotgun and a revolver. Uh, And in other cases, they would have a badminton racket and some shuttlecocks. And there was also a control group that had no items on the table at all. The actual subjects were told that these were just part of another study and were just (laughs) items to be ignored. (laughs) Which, of course, sounds kind of comical in and of itself. Um, but uh, but but I mean, the big thing is it's impossible to ignore those weapons. Right. I mean, there's a, there's it's, it's kind of impossible to ignore anything that is uh, there on the table, uh, like the, the, the shuttlecocks and the badminton racket, but especially the, the pistol and the shotgun. This kind of reminds me of in Mad Men, where for a long time, Pete Campbell just carries a rifle around the office and oh, <laughs> no one seems to think it's that big a deal. Oh, man, I kind of forgot about that episode. But uh, but yeah, that it comes up in several thing. episodes. It, yeah, he's, it's like a fixture. <laughs> huh. So as you can imagine, the idea here is what happens? How does just the mere sight of weapons, the mere sight of some guns, how does that affect uh, the individual's aggressive response? And so this is this is what the results were. Provoked participants who saw the guns were more aggressive than the other participants. And the authors called this the weapons effect. And they argued that it meant that the mere sight of a gun made us more aggressive, not more aggressive without provocation, mind you, and certainly not so provoked that they say grab the gun or anything like that, but more aggressive within the boundaries of the study parameters. Okay, so what they're claiming is to have found that when you see the gun, it's not that you pick up the gun and and kill somebody with it, but when you see the gun, it's going to make you make your shape your cognition to give more shocks to this other guy and to be more vengeful. Right. And you know, this kind of lines up with a lot of studies that we've that have been conducted and some that we've looked at in the past about just how 
random or even uh, you know not so random things in our environment symbols etc can affect the way that we think and behave you know be it religious iconography or eyes staring at us from something mm-hmm. you know that that all all of these things all all of this is stimuli that can affect the, the the manifestation of the mind. Oh yeah. So if, for example, you take that study that found that people might be uh, more generous in putting money into like a collection box if there are some eyes painted on it, or mm-hmm. uh, or less likely to steal money from it if there's some eyes painted on it. What's the effect if there's just a gun sitting beside it? <laughs> yeah. Or the collection plate. Yeah, has a gun. Like what if the uh, what if the the the, the Santa that is collecting uh, you know coins with the bell? Uh, what if he also is packing uh, heat? I don't know. I don't know if you saw this, but actually the uh, one of the authors here, Leonard Berkowitz, is associated with an anti-metaboly that he used to communicate the, the results that he uh, said he found here. And the anti-metaboly was, yes, it's true that the finger pulls the trigger, but sometimes the trigger also pulls the finger. Yes. Yeah, that's that's a that's a big one. And that, of course, has been been echoed a lot because, as, as you can well imagine, um, this is an this is an argument that definitely plays into the various discussions that have taken place over the the the, the subsequent decades uh, regarding weapons in society. Now, I will say that uh, one thing we know that this is basically going to be one example of a study on what's known as priming, right? The mm-hmm. priming effects of like seeing objects and how that affects cognition. And there are a lot of questions about priming studies. I mean, uh, and some priming effects really do seem to hold up under subsequent testing. Some priming effects that people have found uh, in studies of decades past have really been undermined by like failed replication attempts or later analyses. So part of the question would be, how does this uh, supposed priming effect discovered in the 60s hold up under scrutiny and under review of all the subsequent research? Yeah, yeah exactly. Because, yeah, it's one thing for one study to observe this back in the late 60s, but how does it hold up over time and with different experiments, etc.? So uh, I was looking at uh, effects of weapons on aggressive thoughts, angry feelings, hostile appraisals, and aggressive behavior, a meta-analytic review of the weapons effect uh, uh, literature. And this was by Benjamin et al., published in 2018 in the Personality and Social Psychology Review. In it, as the title implies, the authors looked at various later experiments into the so-called weapons effect. Uh, yeah, because basically, you've, there have been numerous versions of this experiment over the, the last 53 years. And this isn't even the first meta-analysis of them. It's just uh, one of the – it's either the most recent or the most recent one that turned up when I was looking around. But, but these were the big takeaways that Benjamin et al. Um, uh, put out there. First of all, weapons do appear to increase aggressive thoughts and hostile appraisals, although their effect on aggressive behavior is currently less clear. Uh, That's a a direct quote from the paper. But they also say that that for the relationship to become more clear, we need, quote, higher-powered studies with provocation manipulation. Ooh, provocation manipulation. The hairs on the back of my neck stand up at those two words. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, so what they're saying is that when you look at all of these studies over the years and you do a meta-analysis, meaning you sort of like average all the results together and look at them in total, uh, it does seem pretty clear that uh, seeing weapons around the presence of weapons or weapon imagery 
it, it makes people's thoughts more aggressive and it increases people's uh, tendency to perceive hostility, but there's not necessarily evidence that it makes them act more aggressive in an external way. Right. Yeah. It's an area where, as, as is often the case, more more research is required. Yeah. And and I got to say, I think this is one realm where a meta-analysis is very important rather than just looking at one study here or there because I, I don't have any way to prove this, but I have a pretty strong gut feeling that like gun psychology research is an area of research where there are probably some people messing around in this field with some kind of political axe to grind one way or another. And so you probably could get some individual studies that are uh, less objective than one would hope. Yeah, yeah. And, and likewise, there's plenty of room for cherry picking from these studies as well. Uh, like if you don't like the idea of the weapons effect, then, yeah, you can definitely find some some uh, studies that fail to replicate it. Right. Uh, and and meta-analysis is helpful for multiple reasons. There, there was another thing that they looked into. One of the major factors tempering their findings here is a question of publication bias in the literature on the weapons effect. So I'll, I'll briefly explain uh, what they called the naive meta-analysis, which basically just means you average together all the results of the studies they looked at without doing any like correcting for potential biases in the results. Mm -hmm. You just take the results at face value and put them all together, look at them uh, against one another and see what you find. And they found that this naive mean definitely confirmed that merely, quote, seeing a weapon can increase aggressive thoughts, hostile appraisals, and aggressive behavior. But they also ran a meta-analysis using techniques that are designed to detect uh, signs of publication bias. Publication bias, of course, is not a problem just with this subject. It's a major problem affecting the quality of all kinds of scientific literature, I think especially in the social sciences. And it, it basically goes like this. Studies that find a significant result are more likely to be published than studies that test for something and find no evidence, also known as a null result. And this is actually a problem because it leads to biases in the existing literature. If Alice does an experiment and finds some interesting hypothesis is confirmed, and then Bob does an experiment that does not yield any kind of solid conclusion, and then Alice publishes and Bob does not, uh, this and then this kind of keeps happening, this can give us an inaccurate picture when we try to run a meta-analysis on the existing literature. Uh, and th this publication disparity could also potentially pressure researchers to uh, perhaps unconsciously, probably unconsciously most of the time, lean into uh, study designs and, and manipulations that would g try to get a significant result showing something, something interesting that you can report apart from just saying like, yeah, we looked and we didn't find anything. And th this is why it's important to publish and reward well-executed studies that receive a null result. And, and I understand the difficulty with that. Like, I, I try to remember to mention them on the show when I come across them, but I admit it's a lot harder to make a good podcast talking about a bunch of studies that just didn't find anything interesting. <laughs> so, you know, it, yeah. it's definitely something that modern science is struggling with, but it's also a good thing that researchers are aware of it, looking out for it and trying to come up with ways of detecting the bias when it occurs. But anyway, with regards to this particular literature, what, what did the researchers find? Uh, how, how does publication bias affect the weapons effect? Well, it looks like it does not erase it, but it does appear to reduce the magnitude of it and to affect some of the conditions in which it applies. Uh, so to read from their discussion section, quote, 
The naive meta-analysis showed that the weapon's effect is quite robust. It occurred inside and outside the lab for many different kinds of weapons, e.g. guns, knives, spears, swords, hand grenades, for real and toy weapons, for males and females, for college students and non-students, and for people of all ages, regardless of whether they were provoked. For some distributions, the weapon's effect was also robust to the influence of publication bias and or outliers. Yet for other distributions, the weapon's effect was not robust to these phenomena. The results from the sensitivity analysis, and that's the, uh, the analysis they ran to look for publication bias, showed that a publication bias had a small to moderate impact on the cognitive and appraisal outcomes. Given the difficulty in triangulating around a likely true effect size for affective and behavioral outcomes, for instance, we recommend interpreting their mean estimates with considerable caution. Uh, so as best I can tell from these results, it looks to me like the weapons effect is probably real on average with regards to cognition, how it affects what we're thinking about. But the size of the effect may, may be a good bit smaller than some studies have suggested. Uh, so so maybe a gun on the table makes your cognition a little more violent. Yeah. They, they also write that, quote, overall, the magnitude of the weapons effect may even be increasing over time, although that may be due to the fact that much of this research has focused on cognitive and appraisal outcomes since the 1990s. That's a really interesting observation. So so there, there are a couple of things here. It could be an artifact of just how the studies have evolved in their methodology mm -hmm. and things like that. But if that is real, I wonder what would explain that. If there's actually a more cognitive priming from the presence of weapons now than there were like 50 years ago, what would that mean? Yeah, yeah, I'm not sure. Um, you know, ultimately in the paper, they acknowledge that, that yes, technically the the, the adage is true. Guns don't kill people. People kill people. But the research does indicate that guns are, are not neutral stimuli. Um, right. <laughs> you, know, like you say, even even if it's not even if the magnitude of the weapons effect is kind of in question, it does seem to be there. These are, it's not neutral stimuli. Right. And so I think this would be a counter to anybody who who wants to argue like, oh, a, a gun is just a tool. You know, it's like, uh, whatever. No, I mean, like if there's a gun in the room and people can see it like their brains are going to start behaving somewhat differently. Right. And and I think on, on some level, I think most people realize that, like, I yeah. mean, isn't that one of the reasons you have the gun on the wall? Right. For people to see it or in the back of the truck or what have you. But again, the extent to which weapons actually influence aggressive behavior, that remains debated and in need of further study. Right. Um, I, I mentioned already that you can find some cases where uh, they were not able to replicate the weapons effect in studies. Um, and then there, there's some other interesting cases as well. A 1991 study from Kleck and McElrath that even turned up a reverse weapons effect, which at least suggests that there, there's a lot more going on than an ABC sort of reaction to seeing a weapon. Uh, but it's also worth noting that it's pretty much impossible to fully conduct a real-world test of the weapons effect as it could potentially, you know, concern uh, aggressive behavior. Uh, but it's it's still an essential stopping point in considering such topics as gun control, violent media, and toy guns. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I think this is a very interesting and fruitful realm of research. So yeah, more more on gun psychology, absolutely. It, it certainly made me think more about how many you know manifestations of the gun I encounter in just an average day. You know, like mm -hmm. all my hobbies seem to in some at some level or another involve the gun. Like I'm painting <laughs> these little miniatures and 
and yeah, there's like, I was just, I was counting the other day while I was at my laptop, my painting stuff was on a tray next to my laptop. And I counted like, I think, um, counting both physical models and illustrations and some instructions. There were like two lightsabers and something like 15 total blaster weapons, you know? (laughs) And then like, if I'm playing a video game, there's often some sort of a blasting weapon or a gun. If I'm reading a book, there's often some sort of conflict at the heart of it. You know, it's often going to have laser guns or, uh, or some weapons going to show up at some point or another, or it's going to be swords and whatnot. And even magic wands and wizard spells are ultimately some version of the weapon. Well, yeah, I mean, This comes back to something I was talking about at the beginning, which is that when we let our imaginations run wild, I mean, when we play, whether that's as children or adults and, you know, whatever the adult uh, uh, mental operations are that we call play, a lot of what we're going to be doing is imagining potential or hypothetical conflicts. And those don't have to be violent conflicts. You you sometimes people imagine arguments, people imagine, you know, political squabbles and all that. But almost every good story is about conflict of some kind. And one of the major types of conflict is violent, deadly conflict. Yeah. I, I Just to drive this home, I'm recording in a closet as usual, and I just counted 11 weapons uh, on, <laughs> on packaging or images or books. Uh, you know, about the only thing that's not, not a, a weapon in an illustration that as I'm looking around are, is a box, a boxed game of Ticket to Ride and uh, a VHS of uh, Jerry Maguire. And that's it. There are no guns in Jerry Maguire. It's, it's, I guess the, I'm, <laughs> it's the cinema of peace. That's true. Now, there was one really strange thing that I was reading in the, uh, the meta analysis you brought up a minute ago. This is yet another thing that could just be a sort of like uh, artifact of, of the existing research that isn't really robust, doesn't actually mean anything. But it, it could be a real discovery. And if it is, it's very intriguing to me. So to read from their paper, quote, one counterintuitive finding in our analyses concerned the comparison of real weapons and images of weapons, specifically the magnitude of the effect for images of weapons was larger than for real weapons. Although there is no particular theoretical reason why there should be a difference between real weapons and images of weapons, the difference was significant in the naive meta-analysis, and the difference remained significant after taking publication bias and potential outliers into consideration. Perhaps participants were more suspicious when they saw real weapons. I mean, that seems sensible to me. Yeah. Uh, So maybe you're saying more – so I think the idea more suspicious is that People's genuine reactions were maybe tempered in an experiment where there's a real gun on the table because they Mm -hmm. feel like something's wrong here. Uh, You know, I'm being provoked or like, you know, they detect the priming. They start to understand what the experiment is testing for, which they shouldn't in a well-designed experiment. Um, Mm -hmm. And that affects what they actually report in the end. That's a possibility. Uh, another thing is, is just that, yeah, it emerges as some other strange artifact. But if that were a real effect, I would wonder what could explain that. I mean, would people actually be more primed to think host- to to like perceive hostility and to think aggressive and violent thoughts when they look at a picture of a gun rather than when, when they see a physical gun sitting in front of them? Yeah, I mean, I guess I mean, the, the, the obvious answer that comes to mind that might not actually line up all that well is just. You know, it is it is reality. It is a thing that I can pick up and it will become it would become a part of my body schema, you know, Mm -hmm. and it is also something that can can if if used um, the right way or the wrong way, depending how you want to look at it, uh, 
could hurt me, whereas the picture of the gun is is not going to hurt me. So you're saying that maybe the picture what's the logic there? Are you saying maybe the picture of the gun is just like, would give you more freedom to explore dangerous, aggressive thoughts because there's not actually something you need to be cautious about in your environment. I don't know. Like I say, I don't know if this, uh, this actually has any, um, any meat to it. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, you know, certainly we can, we can sort of bring in our own, um, you know, personal experience, like the difference between seeing a picture of a gun and seeing somebody say with a gun, you know, mm-hmm. But, um, oh, yeah, I guess now that I think about it, okay, so I can imagine like I watch a scene of violence in a movie and I can get like I can get pumped up about it. I'm like, yeah, time mm-hmm. to fight. If I were to watch the same scene of violence play out in physical reality, like on the street, I would be like, oh my god, I've got to get away from here. <laughs> so, like, m- maybe the physical reality of the weapon, um, produces a different a different cognitive response because like when it's just an image, you're more likely to start fantasizing about violence. And when it's a physical reality, you're more likely to respond with hesitation, caution, all that. Yeah. All right. Well, at this point, let's get back into the discussion of aggressive play versus aggressive behavior with children. Uh, a really great, great source uh, that, that I enjoyed reading for this is an article that popped up on Slate in 2015 from Melinda Winter Moyer, uh, a science uh, journalist, science author who you, uh, I feel like you've probably you've, you've definitely encountered her work before. She's been published in a number of different major publications. She's written some books on parenting. And this particular article was titled It's Fine for Kids to Play with Pretend Guns, which I suppose that kind of gives away the overall answers that she presents in the article. Mm hmm. But it's a great article, and it touches on some of the the key gun safety principles in modern parenting, you know, such as not only properly storing guns and ammo separately in a household, but also inquiring about gun safety at any house that your child might be going over to uh, and how – uh, you know, parents have, have been pushing to just sort of make this a regular and not weird part of our discourse or, you know, as, as not weird as it can be. You know, it's just something you ask, something you inquire about. Um, and, you know, this added with the reality that gun safety education is only so effective in preventing children from handling or playing with real firearms if given the opportunity, uh, which which is interesting to note, because, again, coming back to how we think about our own lives versus the statistics, it's easy to think, well, well, my child knows the difference between a real gun and a, and a, and a fake gun or my child. I've gone over some of the, the safety tips. You know, maybe I've even enrolled, enrolled the child in some sort of class. They're going to know how to be safe with a gun. But uh, it doesn't look like the, the research actually lines up with this. Um, and there have been some very recent studies on this to back it up. Um, 2020 study from Rutgers University found that gun safety programs do not prevent children from handling firearms. And then uh, there was also uh, a presentation at the American Academy of Pediatrics, their 2018 National Conference and Exhibition, uh, that found that most children surveyed couldn't tell real guns from toy guns. Yeah, uh, I was reading about that one, actually. That's a... And and here's a question that uh, came up in 2017. Are children who see movie characters using guns more likely to use them? Well, this particular study published in um, uh, JAMA Pediatrics found that children who watched a PG-rated movie clip containing guns played with a disabled real gun longer and pulled the trigger more often than children who saw the same movie not containing guns. Okay, not super surprising. Kids love to act out scenes from movies that they've liked. 
Yeah. I, and I, I bring this up just, I think it's all good information to have in your head regarding your expectations of even your own perfect child, you know? Right. Um, this is just kids statistically based on these studies. Now, uh, Moyer goes, goes on from all this, though, uh, points out that, you know, first of all, aggression play is, of course, normal and especially noted among boys uh, and, and in, in boys and among boys, you know, uh, in individual boys, but then also when boys play together. In, two, in a 2013 study from Fair and Russ, uh, Early Education and Development uh, is the, uh, uh, the publication. The researchers found that preschoolers who engaged in oral aggression play, such as having one stuffed animal bite the hell out of another stuffed animal, uh, these children were less aggressive in the classroom. And the speculation here is the more violence that kids incorporate into their pretend play, the more they may learn to control violent impulses in real life and control their own emotions. And, uh, and, and you've seen even sort of stronger emphasis on all this. Uh, a 2013 paper by Hart and Tannock published in Children Australia even speculated that we may be interfering with a child's social, emotional, physical, cognitive, and communicative development if we try to prevent them from play fighting and engaging in this kind of like creative play aggression. Now, there's some caveats here that um, that Moyer points out. First of all, if a child is actually hurting other kids during play fighting, then there may be some impulse control issues there. It might be something that, that requires further attention. Mm -hmm. It also might be of concern if there is no imagination involved in the process. Uh, if it is, as Moyer puts it, a case of a child simply hitting one toy with the other over and over again. So narrative ultimately seems to be an important part of all of this. Also makes sense. Yeah. So the creation of violent or war narrative seems to be key, uh, Moyer says, because mere imitation, or say recreating a key battle scene from Star Wars, uh, is not engaging in the sort of play that actually works out problems. And I have to say, I found this pretty interesting, you know, from a personal standpoint, but also just looking at toys, because there are a lot of toys and play sets out there that, that aim, that, that sell themselves on providing you with the tools to just recreate pivotal scenes in a lot of movies. Mm -hmm. um, it's certainly the case with, say, Star Wars and Lego, for example. You know, you'll find sets that are all about, like, key duels, key action scenes. But it, it may not be that rote reproduction of key scenes that's important, but the creation of different narratives. Well, I got to say, and unfortunately, this is just anecdotal again, but, you know, in my memory of childhood, there was a ton of recreating with toys and just out of pure imagination play in both cases, just recreating scenes directly from movies. But also a lot of times I feel like that type of play would evolve. So you would mm -hmm. start by recreating a scene in a movie with Legos or with toys, and then it would turn into what happens next. And then from there, you just sort of branch out. Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely see this in my own son. Like I remember him building this uh, putting up a battle scene with Legos and he was like, dad, this is the second battle of Geonosis. And I was like, all right. And, uh, but then it kind it did evolve from there to where now it's, it's a different battle scene every time I go in into his room. And there are often these little side things he set up where it's like clone troopers camping and looking after an animal or some other, <laughs> like it's, it's kind of Aww. an interesting puzzle to try and put together the narratives that he's clearly playing out in all of these little scenes. Are they ever looking over a baby Yoda? Uh, we, we don't have a baby Yoda yet. So okay. uh, may, maybe may, maybe by, by the time Christmas rolls around, there'll be a little baby Yoda, Yoda for them to interact with. What do you think, what do you think the next Star Wars baby is going to be? So we've had baby Yoda. I'm thinking about baby Darth Maul. Can you get a baby Darth Maul? Well, yeah, you could definitely uh, have a baby of his species. 
I mean, on the Clone Wars series, you had a baby hut. You had a hutlet, and that, that what? was pretty cute. Really? Yeah. Oh. yeah, yeah. Okay, I guess I got to watch this. Yeah. I've said um, that a bunch of times on the show now. My son informs me that in some Star Wars Lego show, there's a baby wampa that's super adorable as well. So, I mean, really, you make a baby out of anything in the Star Wars universe, it's going to be adorable. But you get that wampa. It's cute when it's a baby. It starts to grow up. You can't just flush it down the toilet like an alligator. It, don't do that to alligators, by the way. Don't buy baby alligators. But uh, yeah, Or baby wampas. Right. <laughs> now, now, this isn't a, to say that parents can't or shouldn't enter into this sort of thing, that they shouldn't interrupt or maybe not interrupt but but at least uh you know converse with their child about these sort of holy uh, experiments and conflict play um and moyer cites diane levin an early education specialist at, at wheelock uh, college in boston uh, and the author of the war play dilemma levin says that you can you can ask follow-up questions to statements about say killing bad guys uh, with questions like, well, what did the bad guy do? Is there anything else that can be done besides killing the bad guy? Uh, you know, there are conversations you can have about conflict and the nature of conflict and how this imagined conflict lines up with real life. Plus, they point out that trying to prevent things like gunplay, uh, you know, are likely to backfire anyway, making it more desirable. So it's best to engage in conversations about it. Like, it's better to have conflict play is allowed, but it's something we can have conversations about so that we can, you know, you can have these these important conversations about how real conflict works and the ramifications of violence in the real world. Yeah, you don't want to just send the gunplay underground. Yeah. Now, I think it's also worth noting that, that some of this would seem to go far beyond anything specifically involving guns and weapons. For instance, a June 2020 study from the University of Cambridge found that children's, children whose fathers make time to play with them from a very early age may find it easier to control their behavior and emotions as they grow up. And the key distinction here, and I think I think one worth pointing out for single parents and same same sex parents, is that it's not so it's not about the you know the, the, the gender of the father, et cetera. It's about a more physical play style and stuff like quote tickling, chasing, and piggyback rides. Uh, but this study in question looked at forty years of research and found quote a consistent correlation between father child play and children's subsequent ability to control their feelings. So play more in the domain of roughhousing. Uh, yeah, maybe sometimes helps children understand understand boundaries better and and control their their outbursts and impulses. Yeah, so like this is me, not the study, but I instantly think of the times when I've been kind of playing rough with the the kiddo and I I get kind of clocked, you know, <laughs> or something mm -hmm. ends up really hurting. Like like maybe that kind of thing is a part of uh, of understanding like you know restraint and and the the, the boundaries of physical aggression, etc you find out what too rough is by by like going there with a responsible adult present. Right. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and close it out there. Um, you know, hopefully this gave everybody a little you know, food for thought. And we would love to hear from everybody out there if you have any thoughts on what we discussed here today, uh, you know, especially in and around the holidays when inevitably there's going to there are going to be toy weapons under the tree. They might be human-sized. They might be very miniature. Uh, they might be for grown-ups. They might be for kids. But, you know, what are we supposed to do with that? How are we supposed to, <laughs> to think about these things? Uh, so I thought it was a good, a good episode to roll out uh, this time of year. Oh, man, one, we didn't even get into uh, toy weapons for adults, such as like, uh, what do you call it when like an adult person buys a, buys a sword? They're not planning on using it in battle. They just wanted to have it. 
yeah, that you want to put it on the wall. Yeah. Which, of course, uh, you know, if you, if you think about the weapons effect, yeah, that, that means every time I walk into the living room, uh, I'm going to be touched by the weapons effect, right? Um, it's yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, then also, you if you buy that sword to put on the wall, you are going to hold it at some point. If right. you, um, you yeah, might film you, yourself on your phone doing tricks with it. Yeah, it's it's going to happen. Um, if you have a, a rental house and you put on uh, like Airbnb or something, and you have a sword on the wall, people who stay there are going to try and take the sword off the wall. It's it's you know, they're they're going to go for it, even if it's fixed in place. It's going to be like the sword and the stone. Bolt that sucker down. Yeah. All right, we're going to go and close it out then. Um, in the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts, wherever that happens to be. We just hope that you rate, review, and subscribe. Uh, episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind come out on Tuesdays and Thursdays. We have some other shorter content that comes out on Mondays and Wednesdays, Fridays. That's going to be Weird House Cinema. And then what on Saturday? You get a repeat episode. So it's a, a full a full menu of possibilities. Your audio stockings are stuffed. Anyway, huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 